What's happening, everybody? James here. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm going to be doing a solo game review on The Last of Us Part 2. Last week, I did a solo review on The Last of Us Part 1, and I just finished The Last of Us Part 2 a couple weeks ago, so it's really fresh in my mind. And overall, you know, when I was playing this game, that first 80% I thought was the best gaming experience I've ever had in my entire life and I thought it was going to be my favorite game ever but I feel like they really dropped the ball in the final conclusion the final like 15-20% of the story the narrative I feel like it could have ended so much stronger and more effectively for the characters especially for both Abby and Ellie I was on board with the the death of Joel I was fine with it I accepted it eventually but man I feel like they really screwed the audience by the end of this game because it's such a good experience up until the last 15%. The gameplay is so much improved from the first game. Way better features, gameplay mechanics. The music is even better by Gustavo. I loved everything about this game until we got to that point. Now on IMDb, The Last of Us Part 2 is rated at an 8.7. On Metacritic, it is a 93% critic score. With a 5.3 user score. Now that 5.3 user score is obviously the result of lots of review bombing. But you can argue the review bombing was going both ways on this property specifically. Just like a lot of films and TV shows that come out specifically owned and run by major corporate media conglomerates. Looking at you Disney, your movies and TV shows have a lot of review bombing on both sides of the spectrum. Now, this game, The Last of Us Part 2, is divided into 11 acts consisting of 45 chapters overall. The gameplay is roughly between 25 and 35 hours, depending on how slow of a play you are, if you want to get every single collectible in the game, if you really take your time. Developed, obviously, by Naughty Dog, published by Sony, and directed by Neil Druckmann, Anthony Newman, and Kurt Marginau. Designed by Amelia Schatz and Richard Cambler. And it was written by Neil Druckmann and Haley Gross. Obviously composed music by Gustavo Santaolalla. As well as much of the music was assisted by a different composer as well. I got his name right here. What is his name? Um, Eric something? (laughs) Hold on. What was the other composer's name? I thought I wrote it down. I thought I wrote it down. I guess I was not as prepared for this episode as uh, no, yeah, Gustavo Santaolalla and Mac Quayle, they both did the music together. Gustavo did pretty much obviously all of the acoustic guitar songs and segments, and he also helped Mac Quayle not on every cinematic or kind of heavy action sequence, gameplay sequence with like the real cinematic music, but on several of those tracks as well. Overall, again, I thought this was such an excellent game. Some stars review some reviews. We have GameStop, GameSpot. It was an eight out of ten. Game Informer was a ten out of ten. Game Revolution was three and a half stars. VG twenty four seven five stars. IGN gave it a ten out of ten, obviously because it's IGN. But overall, I think this game was really well made. I thought it was gorgeous. I loved The Last of Us Part One, and even though it was some, for some people an unnecessary remake, I never played the original. I didn't even play the remastered version. I only played on PS5, Last of Us Part 1. So I had an incredible viewing and gaming experience just aesthetically because they improved so much. 
the detail, the characters looking more human, even the environments, the sunsets, the sky, everything looks so much better. And this game really took it to a new level as well. And it looked incredible. It was the cinematic sequences were filmed even better, you know, utilizing actual cinematography, develop uh, actual cinematography rules and cameras and lenses. It looked really terrific. Now, this game, in addition to being review bombed on both sides, I believe it also had some pretty unfair marketing and an unusual embargo. You know, like I, I beat this game a couple weeks ago and I was doing some research for this episode and I stumbled upon the trailers for the game and it was pretty hard to find a trailer or a clip that featured Abby. I did find one and there's a couple shots here and there. But for the most part, all of the trailers leading up to the game made it seem like Ellie was kind of like the only main character you're going to play as, maybe with Joel as well. So they clearly hid Abby from the marketing campaign for this game. In addition to, there are a lot of sequences in the trailers and even some clips where they switched characters out and swapped characters and had characters say things that they never said or they were in sequences they never were in. And most notably... There's a trailer show, showing Joel and Ellie in a fighting fighting together when in reality it's Jesse in that game in that sequence it's when she gets she's about to get she's fighting wolf members in Seattle I think it's Seattle day 1 and then a hand comes across her mouth and she turns and in the trailer it's Joel and I'm sure if you were about to play this game and you've been waiting seven years to play with your favorite video game character of all time because for a lot of people, that's what Joel Miller became. You assumed he was going to be in a majority of the game, it's, it looked like, and also that you'd be fighting with him or fighting as him, possibly. And then, however, when you played the game, the sequence, it was swapped with Jesse. Now, this is not something unheard of, not new. A lot of movie trailers and TV trailers and even game trailers have a lot of cons and swindles obviously they're not trying to reveal their secrets in the game so i understand that perspective where you want to keep everything a secret however i think this situation is a little different because you're marketing your game with joel miller who is the such a favorite character and loved character by fans of the last of us and the last of us part one obviously that you're you're putting him in the game in places that he's not actually in there in the trailer to entice people to buy your game I think it went a little too far, and I understand why movie studios and, and TV studios and game studios do this in their marketing. Personally, I've always called it out, whether it's a movie, TV show, or game. I've always despised it. I really strongly believe that if it's not in the movie, it shouldn't be in the trailer. Deleted scenes, whatever. But when you're purposely rewording things or putting characters in situations that they actually aren't in, just to kind of... I guess in a way dupe people, but but that's kind of a harsh word to use because they're just trying to market the game and obviously protect the secrets of the game and the twists, but it's still very misleading. And I think it's pretty unfair for users and, and buyers to have this kind of situation, this kind of trailer, because I would have been pissed if I was as anticipated for this game as a lot of people were and they saw the trailers with Joel Miller and Ellie together about to go fight, and then it's not him actually. So I thought that was kind of kind of messed up for a studio to do. The marketing, like I said, mostly featured Ellie, which I love the character of Ellie in this game. You know, she's a few years older, as well as we have a lot of flashback sequences in this game. But, you know, Ellie is such 
an important character to The Last of Us. She is the chosen one. She is the cure. And she's really special. And I loved playing with Ellie in this game. I even enjoyed moments and parts of playing with Abby too, but I think the narrative really let down Abby as well as Ellie at the end of the story because for me that was the biggest con was the narrative and the story for this for this game because it started so strong halfway through this game. Like I said last episode, I was like looking up posters to buy for this because I was having such an incredible time. However, I'm glad I did not buy any posters for The Last of Us Part 2 and I might just have to do it for The Last of Us Part 1. Now, let's get into... I want to run through the plot. And then, after I run through the plot, just to refresh everyone's memory about everything that happens in the game really quickly, then we'll go over every single part of the game. Now, the plot of The Last of Us Part 2 follows Joel Miller, who in opens confesses to his brother Tommy his responsibility in preventing the fireflies from attempting to find a cure for the cordyceps fungus pandemic by saving Ellie from an operation that would have killed her at the end of The Last of Us and Last of Us Part 1. Four years later, Joel and Ellie have built a life in Jackson, Wyoming, though their relationship has become strained. While on patrol, Joel and Tommy rescue a stranger, Abby Anderson, from an infected horde. They return to an outpost being used as temporary hideout by Abby's group. Former Fireflies, now part of the Washington Liberation Front, Wolf, a militia group based in Seattle, Washington. The group attack Joel and Tommy. Abby seeks revenge against Joel for killing her father, but at the time, we don't know why she is killing Joel and wants to kill Joel so badly. That Firefly surgeon uh, is the one who was about to perform the surgery on Ellie. Meanwhile, Ellie and her girlfriend, Dina, leave Jackson in search of the brothers who are missing and failed to report in at their post. Ellie enters the wolf outpost and witnesses Abby beat Joel to death and swears revenge. Abby and the others let Joel... Uh, Everyone else go. They let Tommy go, and they let Ellie go as well. Tommy sets out for Seattle to hunt Abby, and Ellie and Dina follow him. After escaping a wolf ambush, Ellie reveals her immunity to Dina, who turns in, who in turn reveals she is pregnant. The next day, Ellie pursues Tommy alone and encounters Jesse, Dina's ex-boyfriend, who followed them to Seattle. While searching for Abby's friend Nora Harris, Ellie encounters the Seraphites, a religious cult locked in battle with the wolf over control of Seattle. Ellie tracks down Nora and tortures her for information on Abby's location, which traumatizes Ellie. The following day, she kills two more members of Abby's group, the pregnant Mel and her boyfriend, Owen Moore. A flashback reveals two years earlier, Ellie traveled to the Firefly Hospital in Salt Lake City and learned the truth. Devastated, she cut ties with Joel. In the present, Ellie's group is ambushed by Abby, who kills Jesse and holds Tommy hostage. Three days earlier, again, this nonlinear story structure, which we'll talk about a lot, I think had a lot of weaknesses. Three days earlier, Abby learns that Owen, her ex-boyfriend, has gone missing while investigating Seraphite activity. Abby searches for Owen and is captured by the Seraphites. She is rescued by Yara and Lev, Seraphite siblings who have been branded apostates after Lev defied Seraphite traditions. Though Yara suffers a broken arm, Abby leaves, leaves them to find Owen, who, disillusioned with the war, plans to sail to Santa Barbara, California, where the Fireflies may be regrouping. Abby returns to rescue Yara and Lev and travels across Seattle with Lev to retrieve medical supplies from the Wolf Hospital so Mel can amputate Yara's arm. After the surgery, Lev runs away to convince the de his devout mother to leave the Seraphite cult, forcing Abby and Yara to pursue him. They find, in the they find him in the Seraphite settlement where Lev has accidentally killed his mother in self-defense. The trio flee as the Wolf begins as Wolf begins an assault on the Seraphites. 
Abby betrays Wolf to save Lev, and Yara sacrifices herself to allow Abby and Lev to escape. The pair return to find Owen and Mel dead on a, in a map left by Ellie leading to her hideout. An enraged Abby shoots Tommy, impairing him, and brawls with Ellie and Dina, overpowering them. At Lev's insistence, Abby spares them and tells them to leave Seattle. Several months later, Ellie and Dina are living on a farm, raising Dina and Jesse's son, though, Jay, though Ellie suffers from PTSD post-traumatic stress. When Tommy arrives with information on Abby's whereabouts, Ellie leaves to find her, despite Dina's pleas to stay. Abby and Lev arrive in Santa Barbara, searching for the Fireflies, who they discover are regrouping in Catalina Island, California, but are captured, tortured, and left to die by slave-keeping rattlers. Ellie, Ellie arrives at Santa Barbara and rescues the pair. Threatening to kill Lev, Ellie forces Abby to fight her, during which Abby bites off two of Ellie's fingers. Ellie overpowers and nearly drowns Abby, but has a change of heart after having a flashback of Joel and ultimately spares her. Abby and Lev sail to the Fireflies. Ellie returns to the farmhouse and finds it empty. She tries to play Joel's guitar with her damaged hand, recalls her last conversation with Joel, in which she expressed her willingness to forgive him. Hopefully that served as a solid quick refresher on the narrative story of The Last of Us Part 2. Now... The story, I think, was very strong up until about the three-quarters mark. And even the nonlinear story structure, which at times seemed jumbled, I was all on board for this game. I was having so much fun. I was invested in every single character. I was even invested in Abby. You know, they, they made me empathize with her, which was tough to do at first, but obviously you learn the backstory of her father being the surgeon who was about to operate on Ellie, then gets popped in the head by Joel. Or if you played Last of Us, not Part 1, then you actually killed the Doctor yourself because it's a cinematic sequence in Part 1. My favorite parts of this game I think I'll start off talking about were one of them was the ramifications of your actions, specifically as Ellie. Now, you rack up quite a body count in both of these games no matter who you're playing with and playing as. And I think one of my favorite shots and sequences of this game is while you're playing as Abby and you enter one of the wolf compounds, I think it's the first time you go inside a wolf compound, and you see the the nurse shows you secretly, I think it's Nora, tons of bodies in body bags, like hundreds of bodies. And this is the first time you really see the ramifications of all of the people that you are murdering and killing, sometimes in self-defense, sometimes just to get past people. You are savagely murdering a lot of people. And I think they do a solid job of making this game and your actions as the main characters in this game make you question the morality of your of your story and morality of your actions, whether you're killing people or not. And this is a great sequence to showcase what your hands have been doing. And the body toll is shocking and it was very jarring, but I really enjoyed that sequence. I also love the explosive arrows. What a fucking blast this weapon is not to mention you can make arrows and make explosive arrows but man i had so much fun with the explosive arrows i wish i used them more often because i was pretty disappointed how little time we ended up having with ellie once we got full upgrades and full weaponry on her and then we just kind of lost her storyline until later on and she didn't have quite the arsenal she had but i do wish i used them more often but man the explosive arrows were so damn good one of my favorite improvements and favorite parts of the games I like a lot how I really like how humans are and seem to be more of a threat than the infected in this game. 
whether you're playing as Ellie or Abby, and whether you're fighting Wolf, fighting the Seraphites, or the or the Scars, it seems like humanity are the most monstrous beings and people in this game. You could argue they were for part one as well, but I think that's definitely jacked up to 10 in this game. I really enjoyed the sequences of Ellie infiltrating the Seraphites in the in those woods. And the Seraphites in general, I thought, were a really interesting faction. I just really wish we could have, if not met, killed, or experienced something with the leader of the of the Seraphites in the Scars because we're constantly seeing these paintings and murals to this woman, but we never see her. I was pretty disappointed that we did not have any kind of interaction as Ellie or Abby with the leader of the Seraphites. I don't even think we found out the woman's name. Maybe it was on one of those notes, but I just didn't notice because I, I ended up skipping a lot of those notes. Sometimes I just put them away because there's so many. <laughs> I loved the sniping lesson with Tommy. I wish we got to use that rifle more in the gameplay, and I really wish we got to play as Tommy in this game because when you actually fight against Tommy as Abby, he is intense and powerful and really hard to dispatch. But I think that would have been a great strength to this game is if they let you play as Tommy or even as Jesse. But Tommy would have been an awesome character to play with. And I think it, using that sniper rifle more often would have been absolutely so much fun. I love how they implemented the real mechanics and gravity of bullets traveling vast distances. And when you're aiming, you kind of have to aim a little high and to the left or, or to the right, which is really awesome. There's actually a trick that if you... At the top of the crosshair, I believe, if you aim, or at the bottom of the crosshair, if you put that on the head of the infected, it would it would lead to a headshot, or it would automatically hit them. And that's where it would land. So I love the sniping lessons with Tommy so much. Again, fighting Tommy's Abby was awesome. I like the Seraphites in their weapons a lot because they are huge and terrifying. The first couple of Seraphite scars I fought was was pretty intense. I really like how you can kill people in different ways in new ways where i'm not sure if you can do this in the first game but you can feed humans and even infected to infected or send them to kill them you can grab someone by the neck or infected by the neck and instead of shooting them or, or stealth killing them or, or shiving them or stabbing them with the the knife that ellie carries constantly you can just wait for like a clicker to come to you and the clicker will take it out it only works if you're going to feed it to a clicker because obviously the other infected can see. But then the the clicker will tear apart whatever is was in your hands, whether it was an infected being or not. I really enjoyed the underground subway chapter. I thought it was really scary and intense, and I loved this new color scheme of red and black in this underground subway tunnels and, and cars from the flares. It was aesthetically chef's kiss i absolutely adored the hell out of that sequence so much and it was really terrifying as well but then something that you can do in the game also is you can use the infected against humans that are trying to kill you or, or trying to attack you which i thought was a lot of fun and you can even kill pretty much all the humans if you if you do it correctly with all the infected in the area by making noise throwing like a, a smoke bomb or bottle at the direction or where the humans are standing and they'll go right for them it's it's pretty awesome the emotional turmoil between Ellie and Joel was really powerful in this game. And I I think it worked really well with the memories because Joel obviously dies so early. It w I think it would have been so much more powerful if Joel was still alive throughout this game. And I know that Naughty Dog 
they wanted to get a new main character in with Abby, and obviously more characters like Lev and Yara in there. However, if Joel was alive, the emotional stakes would have been, I think, a lot more powerful, and I think they could have came up with some better situations of of them having to work together or save one another or something like that. But, But the emotional turmoil, even in the memories, worked really effectively of Ellie coming to terms with the fact that Joel lied to her, that he saved her selfishly, that he took away the chance for her to have her life mean something and to be able to change the world and save the world. And Joel, Joel took that away from her very selfishly for his own personal desires. And it takes Ellie pretty much the whole entire narrative to come to terms with that and forgive Joel and eventually let Joel go. Let Joel go from her memories. I think it's book ended really well with the guitar, you know, where the opening sequences in Jackson, Wyoming, where Joel gives Ellie the guitar which I put mine here, and the end of the film, when she goes back to the farmhouse, and Dina has left her room exactly as it was, she tries to play the guitar, but she can't because her fingers are bit off, so she's lost that connection to Joel, which I thought was a beautiful but tragic metaphor. She lets the guitar lay to rest against the window, and leaves, leaving, basically showing that She's letting go of the memory of Joel, or not the memory of Joel, but her obsession with trying to fight against her past relationship with Joel in a way, and just accepting her him as a father in a lot of ways. Finally, I love the the narrative twists when you find out that Abby's father was the surgeon that was about to operate on Ellie. Really intense. Honestly, did not really see that coming. I was so curious why. Abby was so hell-bent on killing Joel and all these people were so focused on it and why she wanted to do it. I, I was assuming that was just because they knew that he was the one who stopped the Fireflies from creating the cure and destroying the Fireflies in Salt Lake City, but stopping the Fireflies from creating a cure to the Cordyceps to save humanity. I didn't know that her father was going to be the surgeon, so I, I liked that. I thought that was a great twist. Loved riding on horseback. You do quite a bit of it in this game, especially in Seattle downtown. That's one of my favorite sequences of the entire game and chapters in general. It's just this big-ass open area, so many different locations to go inside of and explore as well as kill tons of infected. I had an absolute blast in the Seattle downtown segment. I didn't want to leave. I thought that one was so much fun. I was disappointed to leave that area. Uh, Some other favorite parts include... Fighting Ellie as Abby in the theater. So when you're playing as Abby and you have to fight Ellie, it's pretty tough. It it reminded me of, obviously, the David fight in the first game. But Ellie has her full arsenal, and you don't have anything. You just got to rely on what you can pick up on the ground. And Ellie's got her bow. She's got her trap mines. And she's using those trap mines. And I got blown up a few times. I got killed quite a bit. It was pretty tough to take out Ellie in this game. Or not take her out, but take her out to that point and then let her go again, obviously. Driving the boat I thought was so fun. Whenever I was in the boat, I was having a blast. It was super fun. And the going to that the, the science museum and that kind of field trip that Joel and Ellie take. Joel, it being a surprise for Ellie and surprising her again with the lunar exhibit, putting on the helmet, and he had the tape of... The, moon, the, uh, the lunar landing, Apollo 11, taking off, the countdown and everything. I thought that was super special. 
I had an absolute blast watching that and doing that segment as well as I think the guitar is just a really powerful theme and metaphor and symbol in this game for Ellie and Joel. And I really actually enjoyed the guitar sequences when you get to strum along. And I loved when Ellie sang Take On Me. That hit me in the feels so hard. So damn hard. In that game, and this game is the reason why I dusted off my guitar. So maybe later I'll, I'll I learned a couple uh, Gustavo tracks from the game. I'll, I'll I'll bust them out later for like intermission if anyone wants to hear me terribly play guitar. But I think the guitar is a special special symbol in this game. What else did I really like from this game? Nora's death by Ellie was savage, and obviously she's lit with just red light, and we see this path of revenge that Ellie was on, and she's changed so much. Changed quite a bit. And what else? What else? I really like the skyscraper climbing segment chapter with Abby and Lev and going across that giant, um, what would you call that? The giant crane? That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. Some other things that I really liked. Hmm. The Rat King boss fight. Holy crap, that was terrifying! The Rat King boss, my god, this thing is savage. It's so hard to kill, too. And I didn't really exactly know what to do at first because it wants you to do a, different, a couple different things of like a mix of cinematic as well as escaping to get you down to the lower level. You have to go like right down the right hallway and everything. But man, when you get in there, thank god you have the flamethrower because if you don't have the flamethrower, that thing's going to be tough to kill. Tough to kill. And even after you think you've killed it, it separates and... Is still very powerful, and we'll talk more about the Rat King because that thing is such a crazy new infected variant that I loved it so much. And also, I have very mixed feelings about the final fight. I loved it and hated it at the same time between Abby and Ellie. This game has so many improvements on the mechanics, gameplay, and functions while you're playing as Ellie and Abby. And I think the combat is greatly improved. The the hand-to-hand combat and the momentum attacks are so much better. And Abby even has the ability to continue momentum attacks. And they're pretty savage. Great sequences. You can even do crazy moves like jumping off jumping off roofs and stabbing people in the neck. I, I never was able to do that. I wonder if that's just like a, a computer player, a PC player thing. But I, I was never ever able to figure that out. But I've seen it in gameplay. The music again by Gustavo and Mac Quayle was ter- terrific, tremendous. It's my most played stuff right now, my most played album. I love the acoustic tracks by Gustavo. They really, they really, na- he really nailed it with this one. It's even better than the first game. Enemy Encounters in The Last of Us Part Two felt a lot more unique and interesting each time. The first game, they kind of, they're still awesome, but they could get a little repetitive here and there. But I think this game, because they, Infused just like in the in the remake of Part One, the AI encounters with the enemies and the way they react to you, and I think it just was terrific and so much improved. And also the the use of more stalkers was a massive improvement in this game because they're hardly in the first game, but they added so many in Part Two, and then there are entire sequences with just stalkers in Part Two. And I thought that was those were some of the scariest parts of the game that I really enjoyed, especially in dark buildings or dark offices they are pretty scary not too hard or difficult to put down i was never i don't think killed by a stalker but they are still pretty scary especially in those dark sequences 
there's no need to find those damn tools for upgrades. In part one, you are limited to the kinds of upgrades you can make on your weapons at a workbench depending on which tools you have. And there are five total in the game that you have to find and they eventually unlock all potential upgrades for your weaponry. I love how they just eliminated that in The Last of Us Part 2 so that you are not limited to what kind of upgrades you can make on your weapons. You can do any upgrade anytime you want, and I think it was just a better gameplay experience by making that decision. So kudos to Naughty Dog. Changing something like that up I thought was one of the most, one of the best improvements of the gameplay for The Last of Us Part 2. Also, there are improved supplement upgrades. You also get more medicine as loot, basically, but there are so many more upgrades you can have as well as it's got, like, each... Ellie and Abby both have like five sections of different kinds of upgrades you can have, I think. I think there are five or six, and it's pretty terrific. And by the end of the, their, your playtime with them, you pretty much can get all of the upgrades. But I, I think they were greatly improved, the supplement upgrades, as well as the weapons and weapons upgrades I thought were awesome. You know, being able to make your own ammo was so damn f fucking awesome, man. You, with, with Ellie, you're able to make arrows and then explosive arrows. And then with Abby, you're able to make two shotgun shells for your double barrel. And then you're also able to make rounds for your hunting pistol, which is a savage weapon. It's basically, it's kind of like El Diablo in Last of Us Part 1. Being able to make your own weapons for these for these guns and the, the arrows are so helpful in the gameplay because they are some of the most valuable weapons and some of my favorite weapons to use. And making the arrows and the explosive arrows was such a treat. So I think that was such a great improvement, being able to do stuff like that. As well as having a silencer on the semi-auto pistol for Ellie. Holy crap, what a weapon. That was, I think, my might have been one of my most used weapons as Ellie. It's between that and the bow, probably. But man, I was stealth killing, headshotting people with that silenced pistol like crazy in my playthrough with Ellie. Fucking love that thing. So helpful. That was maybe my most used weapon. And ropes. We're using ropes in this game, which was a blast. Climbing ropes, throwing ropes, swinging on ropes. You get to really learn the mechanics of the ropes in the downtown Seattle section with that fire truck, which was cool. But man, using the ropes was awesome. And we got to use them at least, like I felt like, probably like five or six times we were using ropes, which was at least, which was cool. Let's see. I think I went through all of the improvements that I got right there. As well as, again, feeling the more implications of your actions to kill or hide. As well as, I believe they had the NPCs, the people you were going to kill, screaming like people's actual names to make you feel more moral question marks in your head as you're killing and savagely murdering people and exploding them. <laughs> Let's get to some cons I have for The Last of Us Part 1. The death of Joel... Obviously, the biggest con. And him just serving as basically a memory in flashbacks for the majority of the game really disappointed me. You know, this is a character that I loved playing as and loved the story of. And he's so complex and it's a nuanced character. He's so selfish but has so much love for Ellie. And I was really disappointed when he died. And I understand that, you know, this is the second game. They don't want to... I, I respect the studio, Naughty Dog, not wanting to just play it safe and do something different. But at the same time, I think it really divided the fan base 
And I still think even if people love the game, they still hate the fact that Joel got killed, especially how he got killed so early. And especially that because you never got to play with him or play as him. I thought that was really disappointing. Another con I have, and this is probably a more important con, is the non-linear story structure and narrative of the game. Now, non-linear story structure is a wildly effective storytelling device if done well. You know, it's been done in movies super effectively. Obviously, Quentin Tarantino most famously did it in Pulp Fiction. Rochelmon before that. But also, but it's not the first time that anyone had done it. So Pulp Fiction wasn't the first, but it's one of the most famous examples of nonlinear story structure. Memento with Chris Nolan, also Prestige with Chris Nolan. He'll be dabbling in nonlinear for Oppenheimer. Can't wait to see that. Now, the difference between nonlinear and linear story structure is linear. Your characters just experience time in a straight line. You can have occasional flashbacks here and there, or like a memory, but for the most part, the story is just going in a straight line in chronological order, whereas nonlinear, obviously, you're bouncing timeline to timeline back in, like, it's jumbled, but it's done on purpose to keep an audience on their toes, to keep things more exciting. If you have a twist, it's more shocking, and it builds suspense. However, in The Last of Us, part two, the nonlinear story structure, I think, failed the narrative the way they did it because... They ultimately failed to build the story to a climax correctly. The climax of the game is clearly the fight between Abby and Ellie and the beach in the final couple hour final hour of the game. That's the climax of the of the story. However, before we get there, the story falls flat and there's no rising tension, there's no rising energy, there's no rising arc of story to get there. Because we're bouncing around so much in the narrative. Even if you're telling a story non-linearly, take those movies, for example, Memento, The Prestige, Pulp Fiction. Even though it's non-linear and bouncing around in their different climaxes and different spots, there's still plenty of rising action and rising momentum to get to that final big climax. It's still there. You can still keep that momentum going up for the final climax because that's essential to your story, to any story. You have to have rising action up to your final moment of climax, your, your, your big, big bang climax, your big event at the end of the movie, at the end of the story. And for this game, it lacked that rising tension, that rising momentum because it would fall flat. You know, it was tough to get in the groove with the story and playing because we're bouncing around so much with Ellie and Abby in their present day timelines in timelines not that long ago in timelines a long time ago. It's very jumbled. And I think it worked for the most part for the first 75%. It was, it was working, but against that drop of rising tension, that drop of momentum in the third act of the narrative where it just fell flat. And specifically, I think, the main two problems for Ellie and then Abby's storyline of falling flat at the end are Ellie gives up on her path of revenge after she discovers that Mel, the woman she kills at the aquarium, was pregnant. And that's when she basically throws in the towel for revenge, settles down with Dina on the farmhouse. And then she's content to an extent, but she's still suffering from PTSD. She can't sleep. She has nightmares. All she can think about is Joel and getting revenge on Abby. 
However, when Tommy comes and says, we got to go after Abby, she turns it down. And so you're just like, it's flat. There's no momentum going up to this. And then ran, and then she just decides to go. So I thought that was really kind of inconsistent for her character to not want to go, to turn down Tommy, then to go after debating it. And I understand that she's going through a lot and she has that breakdown inside the uh, the stable. But that's why that's how Ellie's story falls flat. And then they try to salvage some tension and build some tension with her in Santa Barbara. But I don't think it was enough. I don't think it was enough tension or enough story or motivation from what she had so much motivation up into the aquarium. She was, you were so behind Ellie and her revenge. And then just it just left. Now, Abby's problem with falling flat in the third act of the story is that her motivations shift multiple times in the story and in the game. You know, at first she's on this path of revenge to find Joel, to kill Joel. And that sequence is split up multiple times in the narrative where there are multiple times where she's seeking out revenge against Joel here and there. And then she has a pretty long storyline of helping the wolf kids, I mean the, the Seraphite kids, Lev and Yara, which seems kind of like, just like a glorified side quest and that motivation is odd where she's just trying to help these two kids where she has other things on her plate, but it shows, you know, she's a good person deep down. But narratively and goal-wise, it just see, it makes it her motivations jumbled where she doesn't have a direct path to get to that climax at the end of the story. Whereas Ellie's, you can argue, is more of a straight path that just drops and then they try to pick it up. Abby's is just left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, and it's just like forced to get to that point at the end. So I think both Ellie and Abby have huge drops in tension in rising tension, rising mo in, in, in momentum for the story and their narratives. And we're just forced to have this big fight at the end of the story. So I think that was the biggest problem with the nonlinear story structure. But I do like a lot of it, though, where we're kind of experiencing the same environments and sequences as Ellie and Abby in different times. And sometimes you're arriving somewhere where Ellie just was or you're arriving somewhere as Ellie where Abby just was, I thought that was really cool to experience environments as different characters and what it was like vice versa. Some other cons I have. I was really disappointed with the amount of time we had playing as Ellie. I thought we were going to get like a big second half gameplay sequence with her. And all we really got was Santa Barbara. I was pretty disappointed because I loved playing with Ellie as Ellie in part one, but in part two, she's awesome to play as. I love her weapons. I love her tactics, and I love the style of combat she has. And I was so disappointed, and I kept waiting. I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll, playing is with Abby's fine. It has so many pros and cons, but I mean, I can't wait till I get to be Ellie again. I can't wait to be Ellie again. It was just short-lived when we finally got to be here in Santa Barbara. So I was disappointed by the amount of gameplay we had as Ellie. Because the majority of part one, you're Joel. So I figured we'd be like that kind of same role with Ellie where you're playing 85 to at least 90% of the game as Joel, 10% as Ellie. I thought that would be more of the breakdown for this game. So I was, I was pretty disappointed how 
how he played as Ellie for the majority of the first half, and then see ya. Just a couple things here and there, a couple memories, and then Santa Barbara, and the farmhouse, obviously. Another con to the narratives, and I would say to the the last act and the last twenty five percent of this game, is it got super slow. And this adds, this is kind of an additional talking point to the the drop in tension leading to the climax of the story where the cinematics were long and tedious, both the ones that you're watching as well as the ones that you're just walking through. Those playable cinematics and playable exposition sequences. There were some points in this game where I was just like, can we speed this up, guys? Can Can we go? And obviously I don't want to skip any cinematics, I almost did a few times, but I felt like we spent like a half hour at least combined, at least a half hour walking around the goddamn aquarium doing nothing. Some of it was fun. Some of it was cute. Like the, the bow and arrow, like the plastic bow and arrow was fine. You know, that's probably a little tease to the crossbow that we get. But I remember when it's when Yara has... Her arm was fixed and amputated, and then Lev ran... They're trying to find Lev, and you and Yara are just walking around the aquarium for what felt like 15, 20 minutes looking for Yara, and you're playing fetch with the dog, and I'm just like, what are we fucking doing here, guys? What is what is taking so long? There's so many sequences like this that just felt like game filler and felt like it didn't need to be here, and it just slowed the... It, show, it slowed the momentum so much, and it slowed my my excitement for the game incredibly. I was just, I got bored. I was bored with several hours of the gameplay in The Last of Us Part Two towards the end of the game, the last 20%. I was just, I'm like, what, we, what is going on? Can we just get to the fucking story and start playing? So, and even the farmhouse, I feel like that was something that was really too long of a sequence. I feel like they could have just done that with a simple cinematic. I guess the style of the game, and they want you to put you in the environment and everything. But the aquarium stuff specifically was just very slow for me because we had we spent so much time there, not just with Lev and Yara and Mel and Owen, but also just with Owen and Abby. And you're building the backstory of them too, I get. Didn't love their relationship. I thought it felt a little a little odd. But I think that the slowdown of the story and the long and boring cinematics and exposition exposition sequences just took me out of it man and that was that's when i started being like i what is going on in this game what is going on clickers i love they're my favorite infected however i felt like they were a little bit less of a threat in this game they weren't as scary and there was an improvement where molotovs didn't necessarily kill them like they do in the first game if you hit them correctly but, you know, I felt like they were less threatening than they were in the first game. Also, Jesse's death. That irked me. I was really liking Jesse. I thought he was he was a super likable character immediately, honestly. And I wish we got to at least play with him. That would have been cool. But his death was so abrupt. And... I feel so bad for Jesse because he never got to meet his his child. He never got to meet his kid, and he never got to help raise his kid. And obviously, I think this was done, you know, by Naughty Dog to make make sure that Ellie and Dina would be parents together. But 
I felt really disappointed for Jesse that he did not get to meet his child. I, I thought that was a bummer, man. That that bummed me out. Not only did his death bum me out, but then the farmhouse and you know Ellie and Dean. It's it's sweet. It's, it's nice, special. But I just really felt disappointed that Jesse couldn't have been there as well. That that was pretty disappointing. I thought he was an, a really cool guy. Gets capped. You can't never gets to meet his kid. What a bummer. <laughs> Let's get into some more stuff, and then we'll talk about some other things and, and things I think that could have been done better. There are new groups in this game. WLF, or WOLF, are the Washington Liberation Front, and formerly called Wolves are a different paramilitary organization and a major antagonist fan faction in The Last of Us Part Two. They are located in Seattle and are currently at war with the Seraphites, for control of the area, with Fedra and the military now gone after they rose up and defeated them, the Wolf were the city's primary faction containing and ruling over thousands of survivors across Seattle. However, they soon broke their promise of liberation, instead pushing for everyone in the city to join the group as members of their militia and to swear their loyalty to the group. Once members within a suburb swore their allegiance to Wolf, the soldiers then transformed the area into zones that the Wolf soldiers had complete control over. They enforced a strict curfew on the residents and banned anyone from helping or associating with any potential former FEDRA personnel. They also allowed only they only allowed citizens to leave their specified zones with expressed permission from the area's senior officer. And Wolf, this is the group that Abby has now been a part of, along with her crew. After the fireflies in Salt Lake City were destroyed by Joel. You can assume that, you know, the Fireflies disbanded and they regrouped eventually here later on in the game. And now Abby's obviously just with Wolf now. And I, I love the sequence where, where Abby at the Wolf headquarters at the Seahawks football stadium. So the stadium is, is a replica of the Seattle Seahawks football stadium in Seattle. And I thought it was really cool to see what a community could look like in there. And it seemed really legit. And I, I enjoyed that sequence a lot. Now, the Scars and Seraphites are also a new faction in The Last of Us Part Two, who you experience immediately after that football stadium segment. Now, they are the Seraphites or the Scars are primitivist cult and antagonist faction in Part Two. They are currently at war with Wolf for control of Seattle. The Seraphites began in the Lower Queens and suburb in the Seattle QZ between September 2013 and March 2014. It was here a woman supposedly had a vision from which she became inspired to live an egalitarian life and strive for humanity to live on the land again, detached from mortal pleasures and reliance on technology. She was also a fierce fighter, able to defeat numerous infected that attacked the community. Her, charismat her charismatic sermons preaching the cordyceps brain infection was a punishment brought on by humanity's own sins and was a second chance for humanity to redeem itself inspired members of the community to do likewise. With the residents soon living independently, they fought infected and looters and grew food on the land they lived on. In time, the woman became the leader and was dubbed the Prophet. Now, like I said earlier, we never get to meet the Prophet. I thought that was super disappointing. However, I do like being in the Seraphites' base and, and village and, uh, towards the end of the game as Abby in that all-out war that happens there. I thought that was pretty cool. It's interesting to see the different types of lives people will live in this cult, how they just abandon technology. Obviously, the Fireflies 
are in this game very briefly, and then towards the end, Abby and Lev get them on a radio, and they find out where they're located, and they decide, obviously, they're going to go find them. That does not turn out well for them. But I'm sure in part three, that's what the story will be. And then Rattlers are a militaristic gang of slavers based in Santa Barbara, California. They're a heavily armed group of hostile survivors who've set up camp there. They occupy and control the suburb in woodland areas. And they have turned the Oceanside Resorts located there into a fortress and slave labor camp. All right, as promised, I will play some Gustavo from The Last of Us Part Two. Now, I, I used to play guitar a lot, and I started when I was 18, bought a guitar on my 18th birthday, and I played for like pretty much eight years straight. Ooh, excuse me. But I haven't played in a while. I, I, I didn't play for like two years. And then The Last of Us Part Two, specifically, the take on me scene that Ellie sings and plays guitar in the scenes that Joel teaches her guitar and plays guitar really made me want to dust off this this old Fender I got still covering quite a bit but and I played I, I just looked up some tabs for, for the game so it's been a while the calluses are coming back a little bit I've been trying to play every day for like two weeks now so it's, it's slowly coming back I'm very rusty still but let me introduce the first ever musical segment on Raiders of Lost Podcast let me just I'll set the mic up you recognize it? stretch here. Something like that. 
All right, that's enough crappy guitar from me. Let's get back into this episode on The Last of Us Part 2. The Last of Us Part 2 features a few new infected variants, and they are terrifying, just like all the other ones. First up, we have Shamblers. Now, they're an alternate fourth stage of the infected that are introduced in this game, encountered in Seattle and Santa Barbara. They have developed, they are believed to have developed from exposure to high amounts of water compared to the typical driver environments that bloaters develop in after infection from the cordyceps brain infection. Now, they're basically bloaters, except bloaters throw spore bombs at you. They look a little different, too, where shamblers spew out gaseous spores and acid. Defeating a shambler is difficult enough. But once defeated, it explodes and lets out a bunch of that gas. And there is a terrifying, a couple of terrifying Shambler sequences in this game, specifically that arcade in the water area. That's terrifying. Man, they got me with that one. But Shamblers are basically bloaters in a lot of ways. And I wonder, they're probably the same difficulty of killing, probably. I, I never really thought about it. And then we have the Rat King, which we talked about earlier. It's an infected anomaly dubbed the Rat King is a super organism composed of multiple stalkers, clickers, and a bloater that have been connected together by the Cordyceps fungus. The Rat King possesses incredible strength and resilience, surpassing that of a bloater, shown in how it could easily smash through and destroy much of the lower levels of the hospital, including an ambulance, and was capable of taking extensive damage before, dam before dying. And I mean extensive. Now, after taking a lot of damage, some of the intertwined infected can break off from the larger mass. You think you kill it, but then it comes back to life, it seems like, because parts of it came off. For instance, one infected which detached resembled a stalker in behavior and appearance, but was also able to throw sacks of mycotoxin, mycotoxin similar to bloaters. It appears every single infected connected to the mass are their own entity as opposed to the mass being one single entity. Given Nora's comments, it appears that the Rat King is made up of some of the first people ever to be infected by Cordyceps brain infection in the city of Seattle, meaning it developed into the state after about 25 years of infection. It appears to have formed in a sealed room so full of spores that as the fungal growths bloomed and spread, the infected were merged into each other. The Rat King found in the basement of Seattle Hospital is the only known case of conjoined infected. And my goodness... What a terrifying creature. It was so tough to kill. But thank goodness you did. Let's talk about the weapons from The Last of Us Part 2 because playing as two different characters for long sequences of this game, Ellie and Abby, they have their own sets of weapons. Now, Ellie's weapons are pretty much the same from Part 1 with Joel. A little bit of a mix in there with her and Joel from Part 1. First off, she has that semi-auto pistol which you can combine with the with the silencer, and it is such an effective weapon. I love the semi-auto pistol with silencer. Plus, you increase that capacity. It is a beast, a silent killer. It's awesome. She also has her bolt-action rifle. Now, the bolt-action rifle is one of her default weapons beginning at the, at, available at the beginning of the campaign and game. And then upgrades that are great for this one, obviously stability and capacity, but that six-time scope, Chef's Kiss, as well as damage, turns the action bolt-action rifle into a very effective weapon. We also have Joel's revolver, which is located in that red box in the Packing Up chapter at Jackson, Wyoming, before she takes off. And it's a, it's a really important gun to Ellie because it was Joel's, same as part one, 
increased damage on this thing and fire rate, and it's an absolute savage weapon. She also has a pump shotgun. You get this in the Westlake Bank Vault during the downtown chapter, which I thought was awesome. It's kind of like that movie Army of the Dead where these guys, when everything was going to hell, they decided to rob a bank. It was a pretty good idea. It just didn't work out for them. <laughs> uh, you can add fire rate, stability, and capacity to the pump shotgun. I think that Abby's shotgun is probably a little better, even though it's got slow. It's only got two rounds in it at a time. And obviously the bow which is located inside a house towards the tail end of the Hillcrest chapter. It's a really terrifying, shocking way you get it, where you get jumped by an infected. But you can increase the bow's draw speed stability, and you get a range finder, which is an awesome upgrade to the bow, where it basically is kind of like having a laser dot for it, where you can see where it's going to land when you, when you shoot. And it is my favorite weapon probably to use in the game. And then... In the Santa Barbara section chapter at the resorts, you get a silenced submachine gun, which is pretty rad. And yes, it is silenced. You can use it just like the silenced pistol. Now, Abby's weapons include... Oh, actually, before we get to Abby's weapons, for Ellie, you can also still build the make the Molotovs. You have your switchblade, smoke bombs, trap mine, and explosive arrows. You can make those as well as make regular arrows. And personally, I liked Ellie's weapons overall more than Abby's. Now, Abby has the military pistol, which is a solid handgun. You can increase fire rate, stability, recoil, and capacity. It's a default weapon for her at the beginning of the game. And she also has a semi-auto rifle as a default weapon at the beginning of the game. Now, you can increase stability, capacity, four times scope, and burst fire on this. It's a pretty solid rifle. I like Ellie's a little better, but with that four times scope and increased capacity... It's a really solid weapon. I did not love the burst fire. I prefer because I like to go for headshots constantly. So I didn't. I didn't really love the burst fire, but I used it a few times here and there. Not as much as I use like the silencer on the handgun with Ellie. Now her hunting pistol is very similar to El Diablo. Basically, a sniper rifle in your back pocket. It can be found inside a safe in the on foot chapter. Upgrades for this include stability, four times scope, and damage. And then also, in Hostile Territory Chapter, in the Chinatown area, you get the Double Barrel Shotgun, which is a very powerful weapon. You can increase stability, reload speed, and damage. The big con, though, for this Double Barrel is it only has two slugs at a time in a chamber, but you increase reload speed. It's a little faster, but it is a very formidable weapon. Plus, you can make explosive rounds with it, which are awesome, and it lights whatever you shoot it with on fire. Abby also gets the crossbow later in the game in the Coast chapter. You can purchase, or you can upgrade a four-time scope on it and reload, reload speed. I liked it a lot. However, I do enjoy using the bow more than the crossbow, personally. And Abby is also the character who, in this game, gets the flamethrower. You get this next to a corpse across the balance beam in the descent chapter when you're going down that skyscraper cannot be upgraded savage as hell excellent weapon definitely need it when you are fighting the rat, the rat king later on now abby has no molotovs however she can make shivs she has great hand-to-hand -hand combat her momentum fists are, are awesome she has pipe bombs which are lit basically just grenades and then the flamethrower, obviously, you get later on. 
she can make shotgun shells, the explosive rounds, and also she can make hunting pistol rounds, which are, man, such a treat to use because that weapon is super duper powerful. Now, let's get into some other stuff. Well, the melee upgrades are still the same and very effective for both characters. But shivs are really important for Abby, which is something that you can't do with Ellie. Now, let's talk about, I guess, the characters a little more. And we can talk about, first up, Joel and Ellie, who have this emotional turmoil. We're spending most of the story flashbacks, memories between Joel and Ellie. And obviously, Ellie dealing with the fact that she knows that Joel lied to her about the hospital. And also, Joel constantly trying to connect with her. Whether it's with the guitar, worrying about her and the rounds that she does out patrolling. And, you know, I think they do turn into a father-daughter because, you know, most people with their parents, they do have issues with their parents and not unlike Joel and Ellie. So I think that that makes sense. Now, Ellie and Abby, these two are connected forever. And they're both connected by the fact that Joel killed Abby's father and then Abby killed Joel, Ellie's surrogate father. They have a lot of similarities as well. Excellent killers. Intense resolve and determination. They are both involved in love triangles. They both have pregnant friends. You could argue Mel's not exactly Abby's friend. Because it's Owen's baby. Both are on paths of revenge for most of the game. For Ellie. For parts of the game. For Abby. And both lost a father. Now, Joel's death I want to go to for a little bit because I have very mixed feelings about it. I don't love the way it happened because it happens when Abby fucking shamrock up her ass, luckiest person in the world, stumbles upon Joel and Tommy when she's being attacked by a horde of infected. And they save her life. And you fight together. And you escape together. And... What gives them away, obviously, is that Joel tells Abby their names. I'm Joel, and this is my brother, Tommy. This is Tommy. Now, Joel and Tommy have been surviving in a post-apocalyptic world for 25 years. I think it's pretty odd and a bit out of character for them to reveal their names to a complete stranger who they don't know, especially because they know they have enemies. Joel for sure has enemies all over the fucking place. He just he killed everyone in the Fireflies in Salt Lake City. He ruined the chance at a cure. So I found it out of character for them to drop their guard in a way and reveal their names, even in a sense of urgency, in a state of emergency, to calm somebody down. But still, I found that odd and out of character to just trust somebody they never met. And how lucky can someone be? The, the luck is just... Ah, it is what it is. It's... It's plot armor. It's it's just like a bit of... It's too much of a coincidence for me. But yeah. Now, Ellie and Dina, they have a relationship in this game. And it's, it's very sweet and special. It doesn't work out in the end. They try. And I really like how Ellie's biggest insecurity in her life is the fact that she's immune and she's afraid to tell anybody. And she probably shouldn't tell anyone unless she really trusts them. And if you're in a relationship with someone and you can trust them, even if it ends out not working out, that's fine. But it's tougher to open up about that to people. 
And I think it's a really important moment and special moment when Ellie reveals to Dina that she is immune. Because Dina sees her breathing spores, and she's like, I just saw you breathing spores. This is crazy. But I like Dina a lot. I think she's cool. She's got great charm, funny, badass, and I think she's a great character, and they have a great relationship. It's unfortunate it doesn't work out. Abby and Owen are another relationship in this game. We can't really connect with their relationship, though, because it's it's kind of just like shoved down your throats with these memories. And Owen really only serves as serves a plot as flashbacks, and he doesn't really have any bearing on the plot, really, I would say. You know, Abby in Seattle, it, like I talked about earlier, it's draining. It serves a lot of filler time, eats up a lot of time. And her storyline has a bunch of these side quests that don't really have anything to do with her plot or her motivations or her goals. Because she fulfills her goal in the first couple hours of the game where she kills Joel. So what's, jo what's Abby's goal after? Helping the Seraphites, Levin and Yara, until she finally decides to hunt a Ellie. I think it would have worked a lot better if Abby at least had like a main mission if it was from maybe Wolf or, or something else to do throughout the entire story like Ellie did. Because the majority of her narrative is kind of just like side quests and memories. And I would say the, the majority of her best gameplay is getting medical supplies for a character who eventually gets killed! Yara gets killed after you spend all this time and risk your life, kill so many infected and to get medication for Yara, and Yara gets shot. It's like a futile side quest. It also shows the futility of survival, I guess, in this world. Lev and Yara are brother and sister from the Seraphites. They've been basically kind of excommunicated because of the decisions that Lev made, specifically shaving her head and being a transgender character and transgender person, which the Seraphites do not abide by. And there's so much occult about it that their own mother tries to kill Lev when Lev tries to go back to save their mother. Now, Ellie... I love her so much. I love Ellie Miller. I mean, Ellie... <laughs> Ellie Williams. <laughs> and her storyline, again, it's the, it's the strongest, this path of revenge. And she loses everything. Ellie loses everything. And I don't even see the ending of this game as being obviously not a happy ending, but not even a positive ending, really. Ellie loses Joel. She loses her friends. She loses Jesse. She loses Dina and JJ. She loses her fingers, so she can't play the guitar anymore. And she can no longer have that emotional connection with the only father she ever had and something that she could have passed down to somebody else. I think that's really tragic. She basically loses Tommy and she doesn't even fulfill her revenge. And by the end of the story, what does Ellie gain? Peace of mind? Really? I mean, she kills so many people in this game. You kill so many people as, as Ellie in this game. And then you, you can't kill Abby at the end. Which is understandable for the direction of the game. Where she's basically... She's ending this cycle of revenge that Abby, Ellie, Joel are on. Or have been on. She's ending this path of revenge. 
Because if she kills Abby, you know, Lev would go out on a path of revenge against Ellie. So she's changing that. She's ending the cycle of murder and revenge. However, she kills hundreds of people. You could argue that wouldn't any of them just want to... Don't they have loved ones? Wouldn't one of them be on a path of revenge to find Ellie? I, I found it pretty odd, the ending. I thought it was really powerful. And while I was doing it, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to kill Abby. Which understandably is why Ellie doesn't want to kill Abby. But I feel like Ellie had more motivation to fulfill her revenge. And I love revenge stories. But I, I don't know. I don't I have mixed feelings about that ending. I think the ending would have worked so much better. Been a lot more powerful for both characters, Abby and Ellie. Is if they're forced to work together. Maybe they're both captured by the same faction. Maybe Ellie tracks down Abby and when she's going to kill her herself, they have to escape. I feel like if they work together at the end in that final chapter and then had their fight, or maybe one of them dies, maybe Abby dies while they're trying to escape working together, I think that would have worked so much better. Because that would have increased so much suspense, ten, suspense and tension and conflict between the characters where they hate each other so much and they want to kill each other so badly that, but they still have to work together to survive and survive together. I thought that would have been really effective. Because that, when you think about it, like what was the point of all that murder? He has to break that cycle. But Ellie lost everything. She lost every single thing in her life. And I feel nothing but... I, I feel so bad for Ellie at the end of the game. And I just... I don't love how she just abandons her family. How she abandons Dina and the baby. I don't love that. And I understand she's going through a lot. And she has PTSD. But that I did not really enjoy. But I do really, really love that final flashback memory. Where Ellie tries to make amends with Joel. And Ashley Johnson and Troy Baker were... Terrific in this game. And they brought so much to the table with these characters that they know so well. And this scene is really emotional. You know, it's off the charts. And Ellie can't, you know, forgive Joel completely, but she can try. But I was also really upset <laughs> at what had just happened. That it took me out of the potential emotional breakdown I could have had at this scene. But still a great ending. But not as powerful as the first game. I think the first game really just is the superior story. It really, it really truly is. And that wraps my review of The Last of Us Part 2. Thank you so much for tuning into this game review on Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Sure, we'll have another game for you coming soon. Let me know what I should play next because I haven't. This is the last game I played. I beat it a couple weeks ago. Maybe Ghost of Tsushima. Let me know what I should play and I'll give it a try. But take care, everybody. And thanks for tuning in. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin. Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, 
Andrew Hagen. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.